All right. Uh, so there isn't a whole lot to, to finish out the rest of um, chapter three. Other than um, a couple of things of different um, confessions. I'm going to get to scripture. Um, looking, at, looking at either the one on your page or the one on the screen, this, this series of questions toward the bottom, and I'll highlight it. What goes through your mind when people say the Bible is just a collection of ancient myths, dry, dusty, out of tales? Or what goes through your mind when somebody says, this is what the Bible says, and then doesn't match their teaching with it? And then explain uh, the proper use of the Bible is connected to the purposes of the Bible for our faith, for our life, and for the glory of God. Yeah, I thought it was like, yes, maybe. I'm sorry, because part of this is, um, you know, I'm using material that was developed by uh, one of our, that they've got, they've got it all lined up for the most part with the chapters, but then there are times where like this one, where it doesn't quite, where it doesn't quite match up. Um, so this one will be pretty quick. And then I've got the new set of sheets that are all stapled together. And we'll just kind of plow through those in, in order. Um, but how about that first one? Maybe that gets us into this a little bit. What goes through your mind when somebody would say the Bible is just a collection of myths, um, dry, dusty, outdated tales, kind of like a fairy tale. Um, this is still on that page that began about the handwritten letter from somebody. How do you feel about it? Is that, has anyone ever had that said to them? Oh, you're one of those. Ah, don't you know the Bible is just as, uh, as true as Hans Christian Andersen and his fairy tales? And don't you think Hans Christian Andersen is more applicable? <laughs> yeah, if, if your truth is as valid as my truth, then okay. You can believe that go on your way. And, um, but if you need to tear down what I believe, then maybe there's something about what I believe that you don't like. There's definitely that part. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd stand there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you walk away and you're like, I, I don't know enough to do any of this. And re realistically, like two thirds of America has never read a Bible in their life. Joe. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think that's, that's, that's a good approach too, um, to open up the conversation and say, well, I can tell you a little bit more about what, what I believe, but I'm really curious, you know, what do you believe? Like, where are you coming from? And then, and then to, to receive that as, um, as a legitimate conversation instead of, you know, which is something that they may not have experienced in the past from Christians, um, that I actually want to hear what you have to say and how blasphemously it comes across. Um, just let me have it all. Um, how about, what about this last one? Proper use of the Bible is connected to the purposes of the Bible. Um, if, um, what would be what would be one way of summarizing the purpose of the Bible for faith, life, or glory of God? 
think of the um, the re- the gospel response from the red hymnal. These words are written that we may believe. <laughs> Definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a good starting point. That um, if you're looking at and what you really articulated was a proper understanding of the law, and especially the third use of the law, that that I've gone through, you know, confession, absolution, I've seen my Savior, and I see all the blessings that Jesus has won for me. And now all I want to do is say thank you. Um, that's the third use of the law that, you know, life is a thank you note to God, what, you know, a, a guide for thankful Christian living um, is kind of the way that I describe it. And in that respect, um, the Christian in faith, with the whole context of scripture knows that, well, now when these when God's law speaks here, this is an opportunity for me to give glory to God in my life. Excellent. Others. Yeah. That's very true. And, um, and to, to understand the Bible isn't just, isn't just a collection of knowledge that I learned it once. And so now I got it. You know, we could talk about, um, you know, David and Goliath, or I can, if I talk about this guy in the lion's den, we know who we're talking about. Um, but that rather the, the Bible is a spiritual book that, that needs regular contact in order to nourish a spiritual life. I think that's one of the major things we're talking about there. Um, anything else? Proper use of the Bible to the purposes of the Bible. I think another one. Yeah. Okay. I think another one might be um, looking to the Bible for, for scientific or um, a scientific and historical book and historically accurate um, just that even some of the, some of the ways it portrays things are, are also, um, spoken of from a human perspective. So for instance, when Joshua and the sun stood still at the Valley of Ajalon, um, does it mean that the sun actually stood still or do we know, you know, that we live in a heliocentric universe and so the earth stopped moving. And, um, so is Joshua wrong when he says that the sun stood still? Well, no, because we even talk about the sun rising in the east and setting in the west, that the sun goes across the sky. Um, and so it's, you know, we don't look to the Bible for scientific insight, but it is correct when it does speak on those things, even if it does speak on those things in a, in a human understanding. Um, I think the example I talked about previously, I think it was Admiral Lord Nelson. Um, I could be completely wrong with that. He was a British... Um, a guy who was interested in oceans and he searched for the ocean currents and he found them because the Psalms had talked about the paths of the sea. Um, another example, talking about history, 
that the Bible is historically accurate, even if we don't have all of the, the history and all the artifacts to, to prove it. Um, but it is kind of funny that there have, have been more historical artifacts that have cropped up, um, such as, you know, a rock from Corinth that talked about, um, <coughs> talked about one of the guys Paul had met to their, um, we, the inscription in the tunnel of Hezekiah that is underneath the, the temple Mount. Um, we've got, we've got a, a lot of artifacts that evidently kind of verify what we had seen in scripture. Um, and even when, when Paul was accused of bringing Titus into the, um, the area for the Jewish people, and Titus was this uncircumcised Greek man, and there was a sign at the doorway or a sign at the, the gateway that said, if you go past this point, then you are, um, your blood will be on your own head and you'll be stoned to death. And they've actually found one of those as well. <laughs> so it's like, we've got, we've got allusions and we've got the whole context of scripture um, and that we also have some historical artifacts that also verify this, even though the, the primary purpose of the Bible isn't to be a science textbook or a history textbook. <clears throat> Anything else? Proper use of the Bible. I think uh, together with that, um, you know, seeing, seeing the, the Bible not as a collection of laws and rules, um, but as but as a book for faith, and that the laws and rules need to be understood in that context of faith. Um, I think that's where that's one place where um, at least American Christianity goes off the rails a little bit is, or, or secondly, together with that, looking to Old Testament prophecies for guidance for our nation today, that uh, you and I who grew up in a majority Christian um, community, um, are like wringing our hands or, you know, by and large, you know, the conservative Christians in our nation are kind of wringing their hands and saying, what's going on? There's all this, all these things that are publicly accepted and applauded, and it's not right. Um, and a lot of them with, with very good intention in their heart, they go back to these Old Testament prophecies um, where God had said that if the nation returns to me, then I will bless them. Um, a couple of different ways that God had said that. And what they end up doing is taking these Old Testament prophecies that were given for the nation of Israel and applying them direct to our nation today. As if we, if we turned our American, our country, the United States of America, into a Christian nation, then God would bless us. And then God would rain down you know, prosperity on us. Or then God would change the culture so that it would be a more godly culture. Um, I think that's, that's probably the one that I see most prevalently, um, which, which kind of over, overlooks the original context of the prophecy, as well as um, separates the prophecy from its spiritual fulfillment in Jesus, that all those prophecies given to Old Testament Israel were to keep Israel on, on the straight and narrow until Jesus came. That if they had dissolved as a nation and joined all the other Canaanite nations around them, then, then their nation would have disappeared and then the line of the Savior would have died out. All right. Um, the one simple sense, the text has a single simple sense. I think we, we touched on this probably the probably the first the first class period um, that what it says is what it means and what it means is what it says <laughs> says equals means equals says um, and that doesn't mean what that means is we read the text we read the Bible literally we don't read it literalistically so when when John says that he saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain then we understand, oh, the, the book of Revelation is talking about this vision that obviously has some very symbolic elements to it. Um, so it's not necessarily that Jesus is going to be looking like a lamb for all eternity, but that Jesus is communicating something with this vision of how he is displaying himself. Tim. <coughs> Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. And, and I guess the, the short answer is, um, if you read it in a little bit broader context, you know, like John 129, um, John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and you can see from that, that the, the shore here, but in context, if you expand the context to like five verses before and after, you usually see, um, you know, what's going on. That's, I think that's part of it. Um, part of it, and this is, this has been on my mind for a while and I haven't quite figured out, I haven't put it all together. Uh, but part of it is a little distressing at a general decline in reading among Americans. Um, <laughs> just generally speaking, I mean, there was, there was a, a definite, there was a bump up in 2014 and there was another bump up in 2020 because everybody was hanging out at home. <laughs> so it's, I mean, we may have, we may have leveled off for a while, um, but it's difficult to talk about simile and metaphor if, if somebody has never um, understood or encountered simile or metaphor before. And so that, I mean, some of that takes a little bit of extra explanation where you've got the metaphor, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the way and the truth and the life. Um, and if you line those up and you hear it, you, you hear that it has a very similar format uh, or the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable. Um, but the, I think those metaphors, especially in the gospel of John are especially helpful for, you know, I'm the gate of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, my sheep know me. Um, because then when you get to the Lord's Supper, it's not, it's completely turned around. Jesus doesn't say, I am this bread. He turns it around and says, this is my body. This is my, my blood. And in that sense, it, it doesn't fit with a metaphor at all as he does everywhere else. Um, and then, and secondly, together with that, that, you know, that this is a, a serious moment his last will and testament. Um, that's the, the major point that I guess Martin Chemnitz makes um, in his discussion on the Lord's Supper is that Jesus is giving his last will and testament, and there's there's no place for joking around. And there's no and and then thirdly, um, like we said, that the context, like five verses before and after, is the immediate context, um, will often be helpful for for seeing how the original hearers understood it. I think that that that's probably the, um, the the major point of interpretation, is if you can expand the 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 context enough to see you know catch some dialogue or see how the people understood it. So um, talking about the camel and the eye of the needle, um, if you expand the context there, even the disciples are like, well, who can be saved? And uh, and then Peter's like, oh Lord, we left everything to follow you. <laughs> What's going to be in it for us? Um, and, and I think the context there helps to see that Jesus isn't talking about a literal thing, but that he's actually using the comparison of a camel and the eye of a needle. Um, or in, I think it's John chapter eight, eight, I'd have to double check. Um, when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, and he's talking with like the Pharisees or the Sadducees. And, um, and this, that's a fantastic one for when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door. Because if you keep reading like two more verses, um, the Jews start picking up stones to stone him. <laughs> and so the original reaction of the original hearers um, show us what they, what they understood. That they're picking up stones to stone him because they think he has spoken blasphemy. Jesus wasn't just saying, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Um, he wasn't saying that he was just like God. He was claiming God's divine name for himself, that he is of the same essence as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Um, and understood him to, to, to be claiming to be God. Um, which is where the Jehovah's Witnesses you know, don't like that idea. They'll say that he's, he's the first actually God, but he's not actually man either. 
So I guess, I don't know if that's a, a whole lot of help, um, but the, the immediate context, like five verses before and after, um, and then expanding that, especially in John, I guess, to the, the entire chapter, and then eventually um, that, that book or that, that author um, will really help you to, to see how they write. So like if you look at John and then you read like Gospel of John and then one, two, three John, um, you'll notice some, some similarities. Or if you start reading like, like Romans and then you read through the rest of the Pauline epistles, you'll kind of see, get a sense for how Paul writes in that. And, um, and then on top of that, you'll start to see some of the structure as well as how he talks. Um, and so, you know, how do you help your, your grandchildren or, or your children to understand? Um, it's not that you have to be reading Bible stories to them all the time, <laughs> but, um, but making sure that they, they do have some and and a broader understanding of um of the basic you know the accounts of of scripture like bible history and and then together with that um i think one of the more helpful things to do is find some some decent children's literature so that they you know sit and read a story together instead of watching paw patrol um <laughs> it was an amazon it's like this child's book from like 1934 and if you want a copy from the toledo library it'll probably be back there in a few days um but you know there there is some some excellent literature you know whether it is um fairy tales or or like hans christian anderson um you know some of those you have to kind of pick and choose um but that a little bit broader exposure to other forms of of literature um, I think is helpful in, in understanding the literary document that, uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Definitely. And and I think um and and I think the, the, if the only thing you remembered out of all that was, um, the context and the dialogue that, that even in some of our gospel readings, um, and the gospel writers are different on this where, you know, like one gospel writer will have two paragraphs and it'll have like two sentences of people talking, but usually, um, it's in those details of people talking that helps to bring out the, the spiritual reality that Jesus is going for, um, and so I would say, you know, looking at the, especially at the surrounding context um, and the dialogue in the context. And then I think the other point that you were talking about is um, what Professor Deutschlander and, you know, Lutherans for a long, over a century now have termed the analogy of faith, that the proper interpretation of scripture um, is looking at scripture. Yes, it is, but also looking at scripture with the eyes of faith to say that there is a spiritual point or a spiritual meaning to these things. And so the only way to properly understand this is to um, align it with the, the, the faith as the rest of scripture has revealed it. Excellent. Other questions? How about that a uh, little bit about Genesis 1? Some think that a day in Genesis 1 could be an era or 
epoch or some extended period of time, not a natural time. Still encounter this, even though it's um, it's a rather simple one to address. Um, because yes, the, the Hebrew term is is yom, um, y o m. Um, there's our, our Hebrew word for the night, I guess. Yom can mean an, any extended period of time. It's a rather definite period of time, most often referred to a day, but you could also have a yom that might be a decade. Or maybe a yom that is your entire lifetime of the last you know, 60, 70, or 80 years, whatever the case may be. Um, but in Genesis 1, and, and then people on top of that will say, well, it can't mean, it can it could mean it's like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. So we don't really know how long a day in Genesis chapter one was. And it's like, child, let me just take you back to, to, to Sunday school class for like two minutes, because this is, this is beautiful. Yeah. Exactly. So, and that, that's an example of context of Genesis chapter one tells us there's evening and there's morning the first day. So if you're going to redefine day, then you also have to redefine evening and morning. And if you're going to define them in any way that they're used in scripture, then it has to mean a period of darkness and a period of light. And so if you're going to say it's a thousand years or a billion years, then what was it dark for half a billion years and now light for half a billion years? <laughs> that doesn't match up. Um, and I think the, the other one that is helpful, um, when Moses in Exodus chapter 20 is talking about the Sabbath day, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Um, and then he goes on and he says, for in six days, God made the earth and on the day he rested. Um, and, and that's where he uses the analogy from Genesis one. And that can, that is the. Then we're, yes, we're dealing with um, Old Testament scripture. We're also dealing with the exact same human author from Genesis 1 to Exodus chapter 20. It's not like, you know, he forgot. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, you know, the Genesis 1, it's, it's, it's simple enough um, that that you can probably keep that in mind. And, um, and then that part, you know, a day is like from second Peter, when God talks about his judgment, that his judgment is going to be coming and we shouldn't be laughing and saying to ourselves, Oh, we've got thousands of years before the sun is going to burn itself out and God never come in judgment. And, uh, what Peter isn't bound by a time schedule, the way that we are, jokes that's um it's it's clean enough to tell at church and it's funny and it's true enough that you could even use it as like a sermon illustration when when somebody's like you know god the wealth like a and and i've got an entire storehouse of all the wealth beyond that and, um, and so this person as well, God, what about time? Because, um, you know, I live for like 70 or 80 years and you aren't bound by time. And God says, yeah, you know, for me, time, time is something that I created. And so I'm, I'm not bound by it the same way that you are. And so this person kind of gets the nerve up after a while, God, Hey, if, um, if I just had one of your pennies, <laughs> And God says, sure, just give me a second. <laughs> yeah, that, that's physics. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, let's look at uh, Psalm 46. If you have a Bible nearby, we'll be in Psalm 46, verses 4 through 9. I guess that, uh, you know, 
we are a doctrine class, so we use a doctrine book, but we're also a Bible class, so we should use our Bible book for a while. <laughs> so book of Psalms, you're thinking smack dab in the middle. Psalm 46, verses 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Psalm 46 is, um, is what Martin Luther used as the basis for his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, and so I don't think we sang it this past Sunday, but we usually sing it or some, you know, we sang a mighty fortress, I guess, we usually some sing some variation on Reformation Sunday. Um, do we have a volunteer to read four through seven and then verses eight and nine? All right, we'll start with Joe and Lois. Excellent. Thank you. Um, so that, you know, and here's just kind of a question that talks about what Tim had asked earlier about um, interpreting um, and interpretations, you know, of details here. So what about this, this interpretation that we have on, on the screen or on your sheet, that if we search hard enough, we'll find the city of God and drink from a beautiful crystal clear river. And, or if you have troubles, God will always bring help at daybreak. <laughs> or sometime before God, judgment day, God will do away with all warfare. Or bow hunters can expect that God will one day break their weapons. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> well, you look at that and, and it's like, I, I guess I can see where you get this. Um, but the I think part of it is, um, you know, how do you, how do you interpret that? That part is that you're, you're looking at poetry here. Um, and that's, that's helpful where the, the, the indents are kind of set off a little bit, at least on the right-hand column. And so when we're talking about poetry, we aren't talking about a specific, um, specific, straightforward, you know, one-to-one -one correlation between what happens here and what happens there, but that even with poetry, um, we're often talking about like an image or a picture of, of what's going to happen. And, um, and so, you know, the image that we have um, using the EHV headings that, you know, verses one, two, and three, that the earth is shaken, um, but yet the city is unshaken. And, uh, and I guess the other, the other hint of interpretation for, for the Psalms, usually uh, I would say most of the time or very often, um, the main point is going to be like the center verse. Um, so that would be like verse, verse six. <laughs> and it, and it is thrown off a little bit, um, by our, by our verse numbering, um, because the, the heading that you have at the very beginning for the director by the sons of Korah, according to Alamot, a song that's actually verse one. Um, so then, you know, verse, verse I guess verse five would be verse six or verse six would be verse seven. Usually right around that center is going to be where you're going to find the, the main point that God is making here. <coughs> What's that? No, I'm good. I can just get a drink of water here. It's, or I can call on somebody else to talk for a while. <laughs> and I think, but I think that's the, that's, that's the main point here that when we're looking at um, interpreting this, we have to see that, you know, the book of Psalms is of a different sort than the book of Joshua or judges that we're not dealing with, with strict history here. And that even the, the way it's, it's laid out and the indentation on the right-hand side um, helps to cue in the fact that this is, this is a piece of poetry. And so a piece of poetry is talking about um, specific blessings, but in a very picturesque kind of a way. Okay. I don't know if that helps. 
<laughs> Any other thoughts on uh, Psalm 46? So what are, what are some of the, um, some of the encouragements that we could draw from Psalm 46 without, um, without going overboard, <laughs> without saying, oh, well, we need to find the city of God with a beautiful crystal clear river. We need to go searching for it for the rest of our lives. Well, what are some encouragements that the Christian can find from Psalm 46 for today? All right. Number one, God is in control. Um, that statement about God at the beginning is, um, you know, God is our refuge and strength and a helper who can always be found in times of trouble. I'd say that's pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. God raises his voice in the earth melts. Um, and I think, you know, Psalm 46, you compare it with like Psalm 2, um, they, you'd see a lot of similarity there, where Psalm 2 is like the, the kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord, and, um, and they're getting ready for battle, and God says, <laughs> um, and so, you know, what we, what we really see here is that there's, that there's a greater spiritual reality that is more than what we see in this world and more than the power and strength of this world. Um, and, and then if you, if you, I think you can bring in some elements, um, especially the way the new Testament talks about God's holy people. Um, like verse verses four and five, there is a river. Its streams bring joy to the city of God, to the holy dwelling of the most high God is in her. She will not fall. Um, and and you could think of, you know, from the other Psalms that talk about Zion, uh, Zion being the spiritual name for God's people, um, or a spiritual name, the name for spiritual Jerusalem. Um, you could think about, you know, the way Jesus talks about his church, uh, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Um, you could talk about, um, you know, when Paul, when Paul writes to the Corinthians that, that Christ is dwelling in their midst, and that is every reason to carry out church discipline or every reason to welcome somebody back who had been under discipline. Um, I think that is, that would definitely be helpful for, for, you know, being on pretty firm footing to say that Psalm 46 is talking about the Christian church in a very picturesque way. Uh, you could make some some broader applications to the lives of Christians, but that the primary the primary message that we see here is that God is the one who will support His Christian church, even as all of the rest of the earth is in an uproar around it. Um, I think that's the that's the main the main thing. Um, and then you know verse verse eight and following. Um, this is this is fairly common in the Psalms, is that and and even in the prophets, I guess the minor prophets. Um, they have an image of, of judgment day, which is like verses, I guess, verse eight through eight through 10, um, is this image of judgment day. And then verse 11 is just a repeat of the theme that you had all the way back in verse, in verse seven. And I guess in verse one. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and so I, I get it. Like some of us need to hear that more than more than others. <laughs> Personal admission here. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I think both can be true, that, that part of the reason why God talks so much about his coming in judgment at the end of time, or the power that he will exert and display in judgment at the end of time, is to remind believers that he's still that same God today. That it's not just, well, you know, one day it's all going to be set straight, but that still day you have the same God who is on your side, and the same God who has promised to be your refuge and strength, and... Um, and, you know, verses 7 and 11, uh, he's got that refrain, the Lord of armies is with us, the God of Jacob is a fortress for us. Um, that that is true now, and it will be true for forever. It's 
long as we're in our Bible, let's go ahead to Revelation chapter 14. <clears throat> and I'll give you a couple minutes to read verses, Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. can just read on your own verses one through seven. All right, nothing like dropping into one of the more challenging books of the Bible, now one, of more, one of the more challenging parts of that book of the Bible. <laughs> um, it, but this is, this is another common one. Um, I've actually encountered more Jehovah's Witnesses here than anywhere else I've lived. Um, they like to hang out at the library <laughs> also. <laughs> but they don't come to our house anymore. I don't know why. <laughs> Um, but one of the, one of the assertions is that, you know, there's this number of 144,000 and when the Jehovah's witnesses were invented, you know, like 120 years ago, they said that there will only be 144,000 people in heaven, which worked out great until they had more than 144,000 Jehovah's witnesses. And then they changed the doctrine to there will, there will be 144,000 in the upper heaven, and then everybody else gets to live on the new earth. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, looking, looking at, at this section from Revelation chapter, chapter 14, um, you, could, you could probably start to parse out what's going on, but you wouldn't get a, a certain and a, you know, a, a sure answer um, just based on this alone. But if we page back to Revelation chapter 7, <clears throat> and Revelation chapter 7, um, beginning in verse 4, reads like this. I won't read all of it, um, but... And I heard the number of those sealed, 144,000. Okay, so same author, same book, same number. 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the people of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. From the tribe of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. 
And then verse nine, after these things, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing in front of the throne and in front of the lamb, clothed with white robes and with palm branches in their hands. That's verse nine. So you're looking, looking at this and you would say, okay, this is a little bit easier to understand than just dropping into Revelation chapter 14. Um, so maybe that 144,000 is um, people from the nation of Israel. Um, and you know, this, this probably isn't the best example for it, but we'll just, we'll just follow and see where it goes that by this point in revelation, um, we've seen a number of different numbers and that these numbers, um, can be a specific literal thing because these numbers that he's talking about in verses four through eight adds up to 144,000. And then verse nine, he gets to this great multitude that no one could count. And that great multitude is right there in heaven in, in God's presence in front of the lamb. Um, so on the one, one hand, on the one side, and say, well, this, there must be some, that, that clues us in that there's something symbolic about this number 144,000. Um, the other detail that I didn't, I didn't realize until I taught Revelation once um, was the listing of the tribes. Um, we've got Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And we're missing one. We're missing two, actually. Um, that the tribe of Joseph wasn't, you know, we're talking about the inheritance of the land and, and the tribes of the nation of Israel, that the tribe of Joseph was split into the tribe of Ephraim and the tribe of Manasseh. Um, and yet Ephraim is missing from this list and Joseph is on this list. Um, and the tribe of Dan is not on this list. And so, yeah, I know me neither till like eight months ago. <laughs> and so you're, you're looking at this and it's like, okay, so we, uh, we already established from context that we aren't talking who are in heaven because the people in heaven are in verse nine, the great multitude that nobody could count. And if you give me long enough, I could count up to 144,000. Um, but then we also can't be talking about the literal nation of Israel because we would have the tribe of Dan and we would have the tribe of Ephraim and we would not have the tribe of, of Joseph. So what we're talking about here must be some sort of other, you know, spiritual or, um, you know, analogy, you know, that God is using here to describe, to describe something or to provide a picture of something. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I usually try to talk about John chapter eight instead of the 144,000. Uh, that's a good question. Um, but at least at the very least, and, and, you know, for understanding revelation, the easiest thing to do is to, to start at the beginning instead of dropping in at chapter 14 or at chapter seven. Um, but this would be a good example where chapter 14 is pretty difficult. By that time, you're two-thirds of the way through the book. Um, and we had the exact same image for us um, seven chapters previously in chapter seven. And the details of chapter seven help to, you know, at least correct some of the um, incorrect assumptions about chapter 14. Um, and even, in, even give us a little bit more hint about what the correct interpretation would be. Um, as far as that goes, that would probably take another 20 minutes <laughs> to, to unpack. Um, but the, the short answer is that in the book of Revelation, God establishes a, a couple of numbers as a very symbolic thing, um, like the number three and the number four, like, like the number three representing God, you know, like Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, the, the heavens and the, you know, the stars and the universe. Um, and then the number four is often referring to the earth, like the four living creatures of the earth or the four, the four winds, the four points of the compass. Um, and then the number 10 is something that is complete. 
And so the, the math that we're talking about here, and this is why it takes like 20 minutes instead of three, uh, the math that we're talking about here is three times four times 10 times 10 times 10 gives you 12,000. And then you multiply that 12 times, um, gives you 144,000. Um, that's, that's the short answer. The, I think the rock solid interpretation then is that we're talking about the spiritual people of God and that God has collected absolutely all of them. Um, and that there is nobody who has been left out. So that was kind of talking about difficult passages being explained in the light of easier passages. Um, Revelation 14 is definitely difficult. <laughs> Revelation 7 is only slightly easier. <laughs> um, I think Revelation 1 through 7 is a little bit more helpful than that. Um, finally, let's see, I printed out the, the new ones for next time. So I got that whole packet. Um, but I guess next time we'll talk ever so briefly about that term analogy of faith. You won't even need your page page for this one. Um, but that the proper interpretation of scripture um, depends on a spiritual understanding of the truths that scripture is conveying. Um, that's, that's basically it. That if you want to interpret scripture properly, you need to be a Christian to do that. And in that sense, you know, like the, the seventh grader in catechism class has a better understanding of how to interpret scripture than the atheist secular PhD who has a degree in biblical studies, but is not a believer. <clears throat> and then that last part about um, the creeds and the confessions, that's what I'll talk about at the start of class next time. Um, there's, and, and if you want, I've got a, a ton of information about all the heresies that grew up out of Ohio over the last, you know, 140 years, um, out of like the Sandusky area and, and Columbus. Um, cause one of our pastors from the Dayton area just gave a paper on that at our past most recent pastors conference. And it was fascinating. Um, but it, it could also substitute if you, you know, want to get off of um, an antihistamine to help you fall asleep. So <laughs> there's the warning. So next time we'll talk to Quia and Quitanus. And, um, and before you leave, we'll grab the, the new sheets off the printer. And then they'll all stay in order because they're all stapled. So we'll close with prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you um, for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the, the truth and the, the simple truth that you have conveyed to us through that word. May I ask that you continue to guide us in all truth. Um, give us a thirst for your word that we may continue to read it and spend time with it. And also give us, we ask you, an understanding of your word that we may explain it to those who are doubting, who are wondering, who are accusing, as well as those who are new and who are learning. Also, we ask knowing that you alone are the one that can accomplish this in Jesus name. Amen. Thank you very much.